Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we look at the changes to the African football calendar as the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations has been postponed to January 2022. And in women's football, while the 2020 Women's Nations Cup has been cancelled, a CAF Women's Champions League will be launched next year. We look at how this might work out. Plus, lots on the English Premier League as the games continue to come thick and fast. And Stuart reflects on Liverpool's title success. In 2012, the club's annual revenue was $207 million. Seven years later, $655 million, with matchday income doubling, sponsorship increasing threefold. Much more on the Reds later, but we start with the big news of the week in African football. That's that the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations has been postponed by a whole year, a move to January 2022 because of the coronavirus pandemic. The Confederation of African Football also announced that the African Nations Championship, the CHAN, which should have been played in April, will now take place in January of next year. Cameroon is to host both competitions. The CAF Champions League and Confederation Cup, which are at the semi-final stage, will resume in September at a single venue, with the semis to be played in a single match. The venue for the Champions League is to be decided, while the Confederation Cup will be played in Morocco. In women's football, the 2020 Africa Women's Cup of Nations has been cancelled. No surprise, as there was no host named after Congo Brazzaville pulled out last year. But on a brighter note, a CAF Women's Champions League will be launched next year, with the format to be decided. The 2020 CAF Awards have been cancelled, but the 2021 edition will be held, and CAF has allocated an additional 16 million US dollars to assist member associations to mitigate challenges as a result of COVID-19. Each member association will be entitled to 300,000 US dollars. Uh, well, Ida, a lot of points there. Uh, it does make the rest of 2020 a bit easier for CAF, but then two or three crazily congested years. Talk about a dramatic week for African football, Steve. Whew. And yes, absolutely, it really will be one of those rest now but get really tired later on sort of situations. I mean, you look at 2021, for example, and yes, there will be Chan right at the start of the year and then the big one with Olympics mid-year. Now, presumably, there will be tons of Afghan and World Cup 2022 qualifiers in between. Queen. And 2022, Steve, is where it's really going to play out. Because I know with Afghan uh, slated for January, the hope will be that it won't interfere with the World Cup, which will be in November. But this is where we are likely to see huge club versus country rows. And as all this is taking shape, don't forget that the Afghan 2023 qualifiers will be upon us 
before the next Afghan in 2023, barely months after the FIFA World Cup in 2022, late 2022 is done. So I will forgive anyone for being as confused with the numbers <laughs> as I am clearly right now. It really is a hectic uh, sort of schedule. But at this rate, Steve, my point being, we might actually see eventually the Nations Cup being moved to being once every four years. I mean, they've already gotten the continent so used to the showpiece being moved around like a chess piece in all Kanda. So I really won't be surprised if they cave in um, as it looks like they might eventually on this one. But all in all, I think players' welfare should definitely be priority, should be an ongoing discussion during these times. It will be tough for them. Yes, and uh, as you're saying there, the 2022 World Cup in November and December and then straight to the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations in January and February <laughs> really is a serious congestion. And looking at women's football, Ida, you feared for the worst for the Africa Women's Cup of Nations. The 2020 edition indeed has been cancelled. Uh, CAF saying it's due to challenging conditions. Well, I mean, it was one of those where we were hoping for the best, yes, but honestly, we were expecting the worst. And Steve, I think that that sort of weird paradox is just so reflective of how the women's game is taken, because more often than not, it is the sacrificial lamb, as we've seen in this situation as well. Uh, but look, as you've put it there, I mean, we did see this coming. The writing was on the wall almost as soon as Congo pulled out of hosting the 2020 Auckland. And then after that, no one was really coming out. So there was practically no host for the Women's Nations Cup in the very year that it was supposed to be held. And mind you, Steve, all this was way before COVID-19 effect. So we all pretty much knew we had a good bearing of how this situation would turn out with the effects of the pandemic. Uh, but I think that what's so sad about it and unfortunate is the fact that African football seems to make two steps back for every step forward. And I'll pick the 2016 Auckland in particular, Steve, as one of the most more recent ones, I will say, that really seemed to herald a change. I mean, there were some breakaway stars in that tournament. Of course, uh, Tembi Katlana from South Africa comes to mind. There were some surprise teams that made their debut uh, performances in the Auckland. It was an amazing time. And then we saw the same two years later in Ghana. In an ideal world, Steve, I would have absolutely loved to see the likes of Zambia's Copper Queens just battle it out at the 2020 Auckland, and especially after that thrilling performance that they put in to qualify for the Olympics. But, you know, it was barely a year ago when CAF expanded the tournament from 8 to 12 teams, and now we really won't get a chance to see any of that happening, will we? Well, no, we won't. So no Africa Women's Cup of Nations this year, but a CAF Women's Champions League will be launched next year. Uh, very interesting, this. Um, I wonder if it will work. Uh, it's worth noting that both CAF and FIFA are directing a lot of money to women's football right now. Uh, CAF say the format is to be decided for this Champions League. I think perhaps you'd have to play this as a tournament at a single venue uh, rather than the expense of home and away ties. 
I do foresee empty stadiums for this, but on the other hand, it could do a lot to raise the standard of the women's game, maybe. Well, there are just so many ways to look at this one, Steve, because there are the doubters who are saying, look, I mean, the women's game in Africa is barely surviving, let alone thriving. So really, where is the practicality in all of this? And you know what? I mean, they have a very valid argument. And I'll give an example of the situation in Kenya. The Women's League has come close to being annulled on several occasions due to lack of fans, sponsors, support. And actually, the likes of Uganda and Tanzania are way ahead of Kenya on this one. But, Steve, at the same time, you do have to ask, if not now, then when? When will the women's game grow if we don't do our part to actively support it and build its profile? Because if we leave it to when everyone is good and ready, well, you know, what if some people are never ready? Does that mean that women's football in Africa won't develop? And this would actually be a great chance to show just how many countries in Africa have functional women's leagues. Get it started with that. Use that as motivation and incentive to get others to catch up. And all this is happening, Steve, in a wonderful backdrop of developments also happening globally in the women's game to support this case. I mean, for the FIFA forward fans, for example, they are extended to MAs who meet the criteria. And one of those conditions is that they should have functional women's leagues. And we now have these COVID-19 relief funds with 500,000 specifically going towards, and I quote here, Steve, the protection and restart of women's football. We have also seen the popularity of the women's game very recently at the 2019 Women's World Cup, pulling in record numbers, not just at the stadiums, but for broadcast as well. And the fights for equality, too, in the women's game. I mean, even Real Madrid just this week announced the launch of their women's team. So my point Let us strike while the iron is hot. This should be more a matter of how, because, look, the logistics and the format won't be easy. And especially considering some of the mishandling, you know, we've seen from the continental body in the past. And yes, Steve, I absolutely agree. A one-off tournament, you know, simply for practicality purposes for now, like probably like a super cup or something of the sort, you know, um, would probably be better placed for this. Uh, but look, on the flip side, I mean, the fans can pretty much forget <laughs> about seeing the likes of uh, the Oshawalas, the Katlanas and the Chawingas for this one, Steve, because unlike the Okin, this one might give much needed exposure to great footballers who ply their trade within the continent. Yes, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this on social media this week. Do you think that this African Women's Champions League will work? Uh, CAF says it will be launched next year, and the exact details to be confirmed. No doubt women's football is growing around the world, and uh, as Ida says, if not now, when? Uh, This could indeed be an opportune time for African women's football to make a giant leap. On the other hand, though, will fans watch the matches, and would you be interested in an African Women's Champions League? You can go to our Facebook page, 
page and post a comment there. That's Planet Sport Football Africa. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. And just one other story on women's football. Bestine Kazadi has become the new president of AS Vita Club in the DR Congo. She's the first female head of the club since they were formed in 1935. As far as we can tell, she's the first female club president of a major African club. So uh, that certainly is a big achievement for women in sport. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, a Stuart on the relegation battle in the English Premier League. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Planet Sport FA. Also, you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Well, now we go to social media, and last week we asked, are we too critical when goalkeepers make mistakes? There was some difference of opinion over the ability of Manchester United keeper David De Gea, as he failed to save an effort from Steven Bergwijn in the recent game against Tottenham. United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer says De Gea is still the best keeper in the world. Former United captain Roy Keane was highly critical, though, of De Gea for the error, saying there have been too many mistakes. Uh, no doubt all goal Goalkeepers do make errors. Uh, just this week, Norwich's Tim Krul passed the ball to Arsenal's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and gave away a simple goal. That was on Wednesday. So last week we asked, is it unfair to criticise goalkeepers harshly when they get it wrong? And are there any goalkeeping errors that have been really painful for you? Here's my colleague here in Harare, Yvonne Mangunda. Thanks, Steve. And we start today with Usman Mohammed in Cameroon who says, Stephen Bergwijn's shot was so powerful and he was close to De Gea, so I don't think any keeper can save it. And to me, De Gea is still the best keeper at the moment. Malik E. Bojang in the Gambia. As a Manchester United fan, I love David De Gea, says Malik, but he has been making a lot of errors over the past two years. For me, he needs to make way for Dean Henderson next season. I think Roy Keane was more than fair with his comments. De Gea cost us a place in the Champions League last season, and he may do the same this season as well. So I'm sorry, Ole, but De Gea is not the best in the world anymore. Malang Sambu got in touch from Italy. Steve, to be frank, we really too critical when goalkeepers make mistakes. I think it's unfair, especially for De Gea, who's been the saviour of Manchester United many times since his arrival from Atletico Madrid in 2011. For me, he's still the best goalkeeper in the Premier League. Dean Henderson has proved to be a good goalkeeper, but he still has a long way to go as he's still only 22. I think it will backfire in United to sell De Gea at this point to depend on Henderson, says Malang. In the Gambia, Bakari Tamba agrees, says, sure, a goalkeeper should be criticized, but not harshly, says Bakari. As any player in the field of football makes mistakes, I'm with Ole Ganasosha when he says that De Gea is still the best goalkeeper in the world. Jimmy James Perez in Uganda is also sympathetic. To me, the goalkeeping department should not be demoralized that much, says Jimmy. If the midfield and the defense are not strong enough, then we blame the keepers. But for me, we do not need to blame them, and De Gea remains one of the world's top-class goalkeepers. Alhaji Manga in the Gambia brings another perspective. It depends on a situation where the goalkeeper made the error, says Alhaji. For example, the Champions League final between Liverpool and Real Madrid 
The Liverpool keeper, Carrius's error, deserves a harsh criticism. There's some errors that shouldn't be judged too harshly if they occurred in the early part of the match or at the start of the league season, but there's no room for an error made in crucial games like relegation battle, finals and derby matches, it says Aohaji. Bolonga Baje in the Gambia also mentions the 2018 Champions League final. Mistakes are part of the game and no man is immune, says Bolong. But such terrible mistakes may cost a total loss. This reminds me of when Liverpool, my beloved team, lost the final to Real Madrid. The mistakes made by our goalkeeper Carriers left me drenched in sweat. Jamal is a Cameroonian living in the USA. David Hare is a top goalkeeper, but he's not among the best for now, says Jamal. I agree in recent seasons he has made some costly and embarrassing mistakes, but that's part of the game. I don't think he deserves the harsh criticism he's getting. Let's not forget he holds the record for the most wins and has been named Manchester United Player of the Year consecutively for many seasons. Also, I think you should take into consideration that when strikers don't score or make mistakes, it's not as pronounced as when goalkeepers make errors. For Mans Korea in the Gambia, there's been no one goalkeeping error that pains me, says Famaz, because goalkeepers are human and bound to make mistakes. After all, the saves they make are more than twice the errors they make. And several of our correspondents also this week make similar comments. Mamoudou Ba in the Gambia says goalkeepers should be criticized too much because they're human beings. And Pa Saiko also in the Gambia makes a similar point. Goalkeepers are human beings and even players in other places on the pitch make mistakes. But I do not agree with Solskjaer that De Gea is the best goalkeeper in the world. He's just speaking out of his own opinion, says Pa. Here's a comment now from Ecclesiastes in Uganda. Yes, De Gea has made costly errors on a number of occasions. But also recently Sergio Romero was at fault against Norwich City. And yet he has one of the best FA records. But if you have ever played football, and specifically goalkeeping, you would blame less and support more, says Ecclesiastes. And finally, James and the Gambia says nobody in football is perfect. Everybody makes mistakes one way or the other. So when a goalkeeper makes mistakes, that is nothing. Instead, it's good to encourage them all the more, says James. So Steve, a variety of opinions, many feeling that we can't be too harsh, others feeling there's no room for error, especially in big matches. Interesting. Well, thanks, Yvonne. That's Yvonne Mangunda. Thanks for all of those comments. I did have a feeling that some would mention that bad game that Loris Carriers had in the Champions League final two years ago. Well, football can teach us a lot about life. After all, we all make mistakes, don't we? My colleague at Star FM Radio here in Harare, Ephraim Tagu, is a sportscaster and also a youth pastor at a church. He has a few thoughts. Well, first of all, as an Arsenal fan, I've been getting used to my team and making mistakes over the past few years. I remember vividly it was the 2011 final, the League Cup final, Arsenal taking on Birmingham, crime scene, the penalty area, suspects involved, goalkeeper, Wojciech Chesney and defender Laurent Koscielny. They make a mess of a clearance and the ball ends up at Obafemi Martin's feet and he taps home the winner and Arsenal lose at the final. They hadn't been to a final in a very long time. And I remember vividly the commentator as Obafemi Martins, the Nigerian, was doing those somersaults that he used to like to do uh, in celebration. And uh, the commentator says that was the easiest goal that Martins will ever score, tapping home in an empty net. So (laughs) that was heartbreaking indeed. I know that goalkeepers uh, take a lot of criticism especially Loris Karius, as we heard there. And uh, to me, De Gea is a liability, yeah, yeah, at times, not all the time. Uh, But the fact is that uh, every player makes mistakes. Uh, How often do we uh, see strikers also getting it wrong? 
missing chances that uh, look as easy uh, that we think that we could have scored those ourselves and defenders giving opponents so much space midfielders as well guilty of poor passing and losing possession uh, so every uh, footballer makes mistakes and uh, looking at life in general uh, that's how it is too we also make mistakes ourselves and uh, we can make big blunders like uh, some of the goalkeepers that were mentioned uh, we do wrong things all the time Things that we uh, might regret in our family, in how we hurt our loved ones, how we treat other people, uh, taking shortcuts even in our work. And here's an interesting story in the Bible. Uh, Jesus uh, talking to a woman who was caught in adultery, uh, sleeping with uh, another man. And according to the law, uh, she should have been stoned to death for this. The religious leaders were quick to point out her mistake and brought her to Jesus, and they were ready to begin the punishment. As she feared the worst, Jesus turned the situation around, saying, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the angry accusers quickly dispersed, knowing that they were all guilty of one sin or another. A guilty just like this woman of sin themselves, and also no better than her. The woman was forgiven. So remember this, Jesus always gives another chance to those who come to him, and we all need his forgiveness. Just as our favorite footballers get it wrong sometimes, so do we. Well, thanks very much, Ephraim. That's my colleague Ephraim Tagu. He's a sportscaster and a youth pastor, too, at a church here in Harare. Well, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to our European football expert, Stuart Weir, in the UK. Let's start with a word on Liverpool becoming English Premier League champions a week ago after that anxious wait during the lockdown. And what an achievement for the Red Stewards. Uh, Steve, apparently it's a common sight in Liverpool to see people wearing face masks with the words, all you need is clop, based of course on the old Beatles song. And any analysis of Liverpool's success has to start with Klopp. And there are a number of things you can say about him. The way he engages with people is really striking. The fans love him, and they feel he understands them. Jose Mourinho, for example, has been a really successful manager, but I don't think he ever had that kind of rapport with the fans. Klopp has made a point of knowing the history of Liverpool and understands how important all that is to the fans. And while he uses science, diet, even has a throw-in coach, would you believe, at the same time, his personal chemistry with the players is really important. And I'm not sure to what extent this is down to Klopp and how much to the sporting director, Michael Edwards, but Liverpool have bought and sold really well. One thinks particularly of goalkeeper Alisson, and Virgil van Dijk. But you can go back to Mosala and Sadio Mane. And let's not forget that neither of those were proven Premier League players when they moved to Liverpool. Liverpool have American owners, the Fenway Sports Group, but you never get the complaints about them that you do about the Glazers at Manchester United. And one thing the new owners have done brilliantly is to strengthen the club's financial position. In 2012, the club's annual revenue was $207 million. Seven years later, $655 million, with matchday income doubling, sponsorship increasing threefold. And it is that profit that enables the club to buy the Van Dykes and the Allisons. 
And one other interesting fact, when Liverpool won their 18th league title in 1990, Manchester United had seven. And in the following 29 years, when Liverpool didn't win any, Manchester United picked up 13. But perhaps the balance of power is slipping back. Uh, Yeah, that makes uh, this title all the sweeter for the Liverpool fans, doesn't it? And, uh, Stuart, the games continue to come thick and fast, and the teams at the bottom are finding it hard to pick up points. Well, yes, West Ham's win over Chelsea on Wednesday was the big result of the week as far as relegation is concerned. Norwich are bottom with 21 points and 6 points adrift, seemingly already relegated. Above them, we have four clubs separated by three points. And realistically, two of those are going to be saved and two relegated. Aston Villa and Bournemouth are on 27 points. Watford, one point ahead on 28. West Ham, two points ahead of Watford on 30, with that win over Chelsea. And Brighton on 33 looks safe. But as you say, the problem is that none of the bottom teams is picking up points at the moment. Since the restart, Norwich have lost all three games. Aston Villa have taken two points out of 12. Bournemouth have lost all three. Watford, one point from nine. And before beating Chelsea, West Ham had not even scored. As we look forward, West Ham seem to have the easiest fixtures, with games against Norwich, Watford and Aston Villa to come. But Villa's next two games are against Liverpool and Manchester United. And Bournemouth have still to play Manchester United, Manchester City, Leicester and Spurs. That's a difficult one. Watford play Chelsea, Manchester City and Arsenal, but they also play Norwich and West Ham. It's too close to call, but I think that West Ham's games with Watford and on the final day of the season against Aston Villa could be crucial for all those three clubs. So tight down there at the bottom. Uh, now, Stuart, let's go back to last weekend's FA Cup quarterfinals. Uh, the English FA Cup, famous for its giant killers. Uh, small teams having their day and pulling off shocks over big teams. Um, not this time, though. Absolutely. Where have all the giant killers gone? But we now know that the FA Cup semi-finals to be played on 18 and 19 July are Manchester United against Chelsea and Arsenal against Manchester City. Not only four clubs from the top nine in the Premier League, but arguably four of the top five or six clubs in the league. And remember that Liverpool this year effectively had to withdraw from the competition, fielding their reserve team when the first team was playing in the World Club Championship. Now, Those two semi-finals look exciting and the prospect of a very competitive final. But I feel a tinge of sadness and wonder about the romance of the Cup. What happened to the underdogs? Last year, Watford and Brighton were in the semi-finals. 2018, Southampton. 2016, Crystal Palace and Watford. 2015, Reading and Aston Villa. 2014, Hull, Sheffield United, Wigan. 2013, Wigan, Millwall. 2011, Stoke and Bolton. And if you go back to 2008, the four semi-finalists were Cardiff, Portsmouth, West Brom and Barnsley. Not a big club in sight. But I think, you know, it's a sign of the current gap between the top clubs and the rest being greater than it's ever been. And even though the top clubs don't necessarily choose their strongest team, like Manchester United making eight changes 
out of their previous starting eleven for their game at Norwich in the quarter-finals and still winning. It's just an indication of the massive strength and depth that the top five or six clubs have. Yes, yeah, so there won't be a shock winner of the FA Cup this season. And Stuart, we've spoken before about uh, the lack of black, Asian and minority ethnic coaches in the English Football League, uh, also known as BAME coaches. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement seems to be having some impact uh, regarding this. Yeah, well, two things to say on that. Uh, first of all, the decision has been made that uh, Black Lives Matter will continue to be shown on the uh, shirt of Premier League players. And a new initiative, the Premier League, the English Football League and the Professional Footballers Association have come together to announce a scheme to try to increase the number of coaches of black, Asian and minority ethnic background. And what will happen from next season, there will be six coaches giving a two-year work placement at a football league club each season. Uh, just in order to give them the experience uh, so that when they go to apply for jobs, they'll have that to put on their application. A couple of other things I, I noticed, Steve, I thought might interest you. Last weekend in Germany, Union Berlin beat Dusseldorf 3-0 with two Nigerians scoring. That was Abdullahi and Anthony Uja. And something which intrigued me is that apparently... Nike have developed a new football after eight years of research and it's going to fly straighter through the air. And the bad news for players like Cristiano Ronaldo is that it may put an end to his so-called knuckleball strike, also used by David Luiz and Marcus Rashford, that somehow they were able to strike the ball in a way that stopped it spinning and made it easier to dip, to go up over the wall and dip down. Time will tell if the new ball really makes that much difference. <laughs> Perhaps that's the only way to stop the brilliance of Cristiano Ronaldo by altering the ball. Well, thanks very much, Stuart. Uh, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.